This morning we move into chapter 2, a very challenging passage, by the way. As we continue our study of Esther, last week as we introduced the book, we talked about uh, the pride of man, which we saw in King Ahasuerus's luxurious measures to throw feasts and festivals for all of his officials and all of the people in Susa. And we also learned that the providence of God is on display throughout this book. And the providence of God is the idea that God upholds, he directs, he disposes, and he governs all creatures, actions, and things according to a sovereignly predetermined plan. So even in the midst of these exiled Jews remaining in Persia under the authority of a Persian king, God did not abandon his people. And we will see God's plan beginning to unfold even today when Queen Vashti is removed from her throne and Esther rises to become queen of Persia. Now the key phrase from chapter 1 to kind of get us going into chapter 2, comes in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. And the king, and let the king, give her royal position to another who is better than she. So with that statement from the king's officials in mind, we pick up the story in chapter 2, which Sandra just read for us, and there is a lot of dark and overtly sinful actions taking place in Esther chapter 2. And I want to remind you, even before we get into the text, that there are passages of Scripture that we just have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And this is one of those texts. You probably were squirming and felt awkward even as we read it. And you should feel Uncomfortable, And you should have questions about the behaviors that we read about right here in this text. And while I can't necessarily promise to make you feel nice and rosy when you leave today, I 100%, without a shadow of a doubt, believe that our God is sovereign and His providence in the lives of His people is always perfect. So not everything you read, by the way, in a biblical narrative is meant to be understood prescriptively. In fact, they're not supposed to be understood prescriptively. When you read Genesis, when you read Esther, when you read Judges, these are descriptions of what happened, not prescriptions about how God's people are to always live. So there is no God-endorsing for us to behave the same way that we see King Ahasuerus behaving in this passage today. So I want to challenge you that when we get done with Esther 2, 1 through 18 today, that we are not done with the book. So live in the discomfort of this passage and trust in the providence of God that by the time we complete the book of Esther, we will have a better understanding of how God is at work. It would be the equivalent of watching a single episode of a TV show and making a general statement about the whole show. That's not how we watch TV. We don't watch one episode and then make these generic statements about the totality of the show. 
In the same way, we don't want to take Esther 2, 1 through 18 and make some sort of overall judgment about the whole book until we allow it to play itself out. So, in this passage today, two points. The sinful plan for Vashti's replacement and then God's faithfulness through a sinful plan. The sinful plan for Vashti's replacement and then God's faithfulness through that sinful plan. So we know the king had to select another queen since this decree prevented him from allowing Vashti to remain on the throne. Now, unfortunately, the plan that the young men in his inner circle came up with is not a plan that you and I would approve of today. One Greek historian by the name of Herodotus said normally in Persian culture, the next queen actually came from one of the seven noble families within Persia. But this is not how Ahasuerus goes about replacing Vashti. Look at verse 3. He says, And let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. In case you don't remember, back in chapter 1, we're told at the very beginning that the king had control of 127 provinces. Now, this text isn't clear where all of these women came from, but this was a far-reaching massive campaign throughout all of Persia to find the next queen of Persia. And Ahasuerus, it appears, had free reign to take any woman he wants for his own pleasure. The term used here for virgin actually means a woman of marriageable age. But more than likely, these were actual virgins that Ahasuerus welcomed in to his presence. And the women gathered were placed under the custody of Haggai, who was the king's eunuch. And it was his job to be in charge of all of these women. He essentially was their beauty coach. And they were given royal treatment for 12 months. And this part of the story probably sounds somewhat appealing to many of the ladies in this room. Oil and spices and getting their fingernails and their toenails painted and all of the things that come with being the most beautiful woman possible. In verse 12, we're given some of the details regarding the beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Now, we're not exactly sure how they went about doing that, but some of the commentaries believe that this could have been some sort of chemical bath that they went through, even fumigation, so that they would smell good, that they would look as beautiful as possible before they went in before the king. The point of it all is to ensure that no expense would be spared when it would come to finding a hazardous next queen. And this, by the way, is an incredibly superficial way to go about finding the next queen. Ahasuerus didn't care about really anything else but making sure that whoever the next queen was of Persia, that she would be able to satisfy him with her beauty. And before we cast judgment 
Ahasuerus, is this not the way that a lot of people in our culture today go about finding who they want to be with? Strictly superficial, physical things. When I meet with couples to do premarital counseling, we usually have three to four sessions and, you know, they're in love and you know how it is. They think everything's going to be great. So a lot of the stuff that you teach couples that are about to get married, it's just right over their head. They don't know that they're going to have arguments. They don't think they're going to fight over all these things. But there's always one thing that I tell all premarital couples, or yeah, people that are not married yet, as they go through counseling, I say, if you don't remember anything else about what I tell you, remember this statement. And it is this. Love, and I say it at every wedding I do, by the way. So if you've been to a wedding that I've done, you've heard it. Love does not sustain your marriage. The covenant that you make is what sustains your marriage. Love does not sustain a marriage. The covenant that a husband and a wife make before God and before all of the witnesses in the room, it is the covenant that they are making that sustains their marriage. Those of you that have been married a while know this to be true. While you always love your husband or your wife, the feelings of love ebb and flow sometimes. When you're in the throes of raising children, when you are literally going from one activity to the next, when you are busy at work, you don't always have the time that you at one time had to have all of the romance And that's why we have to be intentional about those things. But nevertheless, the love that we have for our spouse can often ebb and flow. And what happens in our culture many times is when the feelings of love go away, people think it's time to get out of the marriage. Because their marriage was built on the love that they had between one another at the expense of the covenant that they made with one another. See, the covenant ends up coming underneath the love rather than the love coming underneath the foundation of the covenant and if couples are going to continue to actually sustain their marriage through the ups and downs it will be not because of the love that they have but because of the covenant when you read the new testament's teaching on marriage there's not nearly as much talk about love between husband and wife as there is about the covenant between a husband and a wife. Now, I realize as we're reading about Ahasuerus here, he's not a Christian. And he's certainly not living by a biblical sexual ethic. But before we look down on him and the way that he treats women, just realize this is the way in many cultures, even in the West sometimes, that women are still treated today. So this is not unique to ancient Persia. In Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, basically what he's doing is tracing how we got to where we are at this point in history, and he's kind of studying the sexual revolution. And he points out in that book that Hugh Hefner, I bet you never thought you would hear the word Hugh Hefner in a Sunday morning service. He points out 
that Hugh Hefner is one of the key players in Western society of paving the way for the culture, current culture's view, especially in America, towards sex. He says that Hefner was influential in removing the social stigma attached to pornography and attached to the selling of sex as a commercial interest. So what Hugh Hefner did, according to this book, is tried to make pornography and sex as a classy enterprise, something that the social elites of society do. And since most people in the world are drawn to celebrity culture, sex and pornography became to be more normalized even amongst middle class people. And of course, Hugh Hefner's vision completely ignores the relational and spiritual and physical ramifications of the pornography industry. And so Truman states in his book, the philosophical claim I am making here is that the normalization of pornography in mainstream culture is deeply connected to the mainstream culture's rejection of any kind of sacred order. Pornography carries with it a philosophy of sex and of what it means to be human that is inimical to traditional religious perspectives. In the West's case, primarily Christianity. Now, while Ahasuerus is not viewing pornography in the way that we would understand it today, his sexual ethic is horrendous. The way that he treats women is not God-honoring. This is not God-prescribing a behavior for anyone in leadership to imitate. The goal of life for Ahasuerus was clearly sexual fulfillment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the goal of your life is not sexual fulfillment. It is not sexual fulfillment. Young people, people that are dating, people that have been married for 60 years, the goal of your life is not sexual fulfillment. The goal of your life is the glory of God. And that might mean that you are never able to be fulfilled sexually. And guess what? Since that's not the goal of your life, God will sustain you. He will provide for you. You will find more intimacy and beauty in a relationship with Christ and the intimacy and the communion that you will have with Him. You will find more goodness and grace and mercy and deep love with Christ far and above anyone else that could offer you something sexually. If you are in Christ, know that Jesus satisfies and fulfills you in a way that sex never can and sex never will. Because sex cannot forgive you of your sins. And the goal of life is reconciliation to a holy God. And that only comes through Christ himself. 
And that's an identity that you can take to the bank. Now, after these beauty treatments are complete, we're given details of the next step for these young women. Here's what it says in verses 13 and 14. Starting to get uncomfortable now. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. What does the text mean by delighting in her? It is not talking about having a pleasant conversation. It is not about she had a really good personality. This is clearly about the king being satisfied sexually. Essentially, what is going on here is that the women in Persia are in competition with one another to see which woman would ultimately win Ahasuerus' heart by her beauty and sexual performance. And sadly, even if they lost the competition, they weren't sent home. They did not get to go back home and live a normal life with their family. They were kept in the custody of the king as a concubine. So that any random day that he decided he would like another woman to come into his presence, she would be there waiting for him. Are you picking up on the evil behind this plan? So here's the question. How in the world is God going to intervene in the midst of this evil and depressing plan? So let's look, number two. At God's faithfulness through a sinful plan. And we actually have to backtrack to the beginning of chapter 2. Because we have the entrance of another character into this story by the name of Mordecai. We're told in verse 5 that Mordecai is a Benjaminite related to Kish. Which means that Mordecai is related to King Saul, the first king in Israel. He comes from that line because Saul's father was Kish. So not only is Mordecai a Jew, we also learn that he is a Jew of noble upbringing. He comes from the line of the first king within the nation of Israel. And we're told in verse 6 that Mordecai was taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar during the exile into Babylon. And it happened at the time that the king of Judah was Jeconiah, who was the second to last king of Judah, who was taken into Babylon. So God isn't just going to accomplish his purposes through a normal Jewish man. He's going to accomplish his purposes through a Jewish man of great historical, royal nobility. And the text tells us that Mordecai was raising Esther at this time. She was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. And so she was taken into the custody of Haggai, taken away from Mordecai. It's not like she raised her hand and said, I'll go to the king. No, no, she was taken. The king could take whoever he wanted. So he takes Esther 
from the custody of Mordecai and placed under the custody of Haggai, who was the king's eunuch. Look at verse 9. And the young woman, this is Esther, pleased him and won his favor, talking about Haggai, who was the king's eunuch. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now we already know that Esther was beautiful. But don't you see the providence of God even in this small amount of verses? She clearly gains favor with Haggai. Because God is going to ensure that she gains favor with him. We're not really given a lot of detail as to how Esther gains favor with him. But that's not really what matters. What matters is that no matter what, God was going to ensure that she did in fact gain favor with this man. And in verse 10, we're told something very interesting. Mordecai tells Esther to not tell anyone about your heritage. He tells her to tell no one that you're a Jew. Now, if we didn't understand the context, we might be prone to think this flies in the face of everything we know about Jesus saying, if you deny me before mother, father, son, daughter, you'll deny me uh, you know, before God in heaven. Or why is Esther choosing to basically deny her Jewishness? We all know that we're supposed to be bold and faithfully proclaim the gospel and not be ashamed. But there are times when it's actually most prudent to wait before making our faith known. Not in all instances, but in some instances. For instance, one who might go on to the mission field in a closed country where it could be very dangerous to proclaim faith in Jesus. If a missionary's purpose is to leave and go to a closed country and proclaim the gospel, they might want to get on the ground first, get a lay of the land, figure out the best way to strategize planting a church and proclaim the gospel instead of just getting off the plane and start passing out Bibles. In which case, they're going to be kicked out of the country and the gospel is not actually ever going to be able to be proclaimed by those missionaries. And that's kind of what's happening Here with Esther. It's not that she's ashamed of her Jewish heritage. It's just that this is not the moment when God would want her to reveal her family lineage. So rather than viewing this as some sort of coward maneuver, it's actually an example of great wisdom by Mordecai and Esther. And we're told in verse 11 that Mordecai is able to keep tabs on Esther's progress by walking... In front of the court of the harem daily, it says. So even though Mordecai is no longer able to control Esther or fully protect her as he once could, he is able to daily check on her progress, which, by the way, will become very important later in the story. Now for the darkest part of the passage. Verses 16 and 17. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, 
In the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign is 478 B.C., in case you like a chronological timeline. And notice that the author of Esther doesn't give us any information again about how she is able to gain favor with the king. And don't you think the whole point is for us to not know the details, but to rather just trust that God's sovereign plan and providence in Esther's life is on display here. The favor of God is clearly on Esther. And I know the question right now that everyone is asking is, why would God allow Esther to be taken into custody and forced to sleep with the king? That's a great question. And by the way, if you're asking that question, you're literally one of millions and millions of believers in Christ who have asked the very same question. Could there not have been some other way that God could have accomplished his purpose? Could he have not just wiped out the Persians the same way that he wiped out the Egyptians? Could he not have somehow sent Mordecai in to gain favor with the king and his officials? You can read commentary after commentary, article after article, faithful biblical Christian website after Christian website to try to find a clear-cut answer as to why this would happen. And all of those steps, by the way, would be helpful and beneficial. And you should get on your knees and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and direct you as you read challenging passages like that. But ultimately, this is one of those passages, in my opinion, that God wants you to literally wrestle with the text. We are so prone to, when we read the Bible, to look for easy answers and direction for life. And that's, that's good. We should do that. We should always go to God's word. And sometimes he does give us easy answers. And sometimes he does give us very clear direction on which way we are to go. But not every biblical text ends with this perfect, easy answer. Many of you know Jen Wilkin. She's a well-known Bible teacher. She's written books like uh, Women of the Word and Ten Words to Live By. And in many of her books and her talks, she talks about how when we study the Bible, it's okay sometimes to dwell in the I don't know. What that means is it's okay to wrestle with the text. It's okay to come across passages like Esther 2 or passages in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy when God is wiping out whole nations. It's okay to read passages like that and wrestle with them. I'm not saying we don't believe them, but it's okay to wrestle 
with them. To allow the Holy Spirit to chip away at our hearts about all of those preconceived notions we have and allow us to wrestle with the challenging passages of God's Word. What she says is, the reason we don't like to stay in I don't know very long is because we hate cognitive dissonance. I'll define it for you. Cognitive dissonance is when something we believe or read gets challenged or when something we know doesn't harmonize with what we're seeing, hearing, or experiencing. This is a text in which you will experience cognitive dissonance. And it's okay to dwell in the I don't know. Here's what she says. When we don't fight for understanding on our own, when we don't feel the dissonance of what we don't know, the learning process gets short-circuited. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides our hearts and minds to understand the biblical truth in every single passage, including the truth of what we read here in Esther 2, 1 to 18. So, rather than give you this easy answer as to why God would allow Esther to experience this, I actually want you to wrestle with cognitive dissonance over this passage. Within the framework of understanding one of the key themes of the book, which is God's providence. That he is ultimately going to use what Esther experienced here in chapter 2 as a way to care for his people. But here's what I know without a shadow of a doubt. Even though God would allow Esther to experience a horrible situation through physical and sexual enslavement to a foreign king, you need, to leave to know, you need to leave today knowing this. It is not the most unjust story in the Bible. There's another, far more unjust story in the New Testament. When a Jewish man who lived a sinless and perfect life treated people with full compassion taught people with great authority, healed people selflessly, was arrested, beaten, spit upon, and crucified on a bloody cross. And the most amazing part of that story is that his sinless, perfect life and the experience of agony, humiliation, and pain was done in the place of sinners like you and me. You see, we should have been the ones to experience the wrath of God for our sin. But Jesus took our place. He was the substitute. The greatest act of injustice in the history of the world was the plan, the plan that God set in motion before the foundation of the world so that any person 
who repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ could be justified before God even though they don't deserve it. The act of injustice that Esther was allowed to endure for the eventual saving of God's chosen people should lead us to love and cherish the ultimate act of injustice whereby God would save his people once and for all from the punishment and the power of sin. Christians, the only thing we are waiting for is to be free from the presence of sin. We have already been saved from the punishment of sin and from the power of sin. So we anxiously wait the return of Christ when we will be freed once and for all from the presence of sin. Non-Christian, when you are prone to cry out over injustices that you see happening in the world or even in a text here like Esther 2, I hope it will lead you to remember the ultimate act of injustice, the death of Jesus for the sins of his people. Jesus' death, the ultimate act of injustice, shows us that if a man can die for the sins of people that don't deserve it, and God be faithful in that, and justify us back to himself, then most certainly God can orchestrate events in the life of a young lady in Persia who experiences evil, sinful things to save his people from foreign oppression. Allow the story of Esther 2 to take you to the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who ultimately died for the love that he had for his people. Let's pray. Father, we trust in your providence. We trust in your sovereign, perfect plan. And sometimes in our finite minds, we have trouble understanding why you choose to work the way that you do but we know that you are faithful. We know that you are true. We know that you love your people. And we submit to your authority. So God, we thank you for this story in Esther's life. And even though it might cause us to wrestle and struggle, we ultimately know that you work out all things for good for your people. And we put our faith and our trust and our confidence in the promise of Romans 8.28. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.